Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Thursday, September 3rd. I'm Lorraine Gasteres, and these are today's headlines. Controversy growing as mixed signals emerge from the federal government about when a coronavirus vaccine might be rolled out across the United States. Unrest continues in America. Joe Biden to meet with the family of Jacob Blake just days after he was shot by police. This as video emerges of another man's death in police custody in Rochester, New York. And 60 days away from election night, are the Trump and Biden campaigns doing enough to reach the Latino vote? Our conversation on this crucial voting block. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with outrage over disturbing new body cam footage showing Rochester, New York police pinning down a black man after his family called 911 for help. The video prompting protesters to take over the streets and demand justice for the death of Daniel Prude. Grecia Lastra has the latest on the investigation. Overnight outrage growing from newly released body cam video showing police officers pinning down an unarmed naked man until he stops breathing. Protesters in Rochester, New York, clashed with police Wednesday demanding the officers involved face charges. That was a full-fledged, ongoing murder. Cold-blooded. The man in the video is Daniel Prude. His family says they called 911 on March 23rd to get help for the 41-year-old, apparently suffering a mental health crisis. In the video, police approach Prude, who is naked on a snowy Rochester street. Are you Daniel? Yes, sir. Prude initially appears to obey the officer's commands and handcuff him. He is then heard shouting at officers, at times spitting before they cover his face with a white hood. Minutes later, the officers pin him down to the ground. Video shows one officer holding Prude's head down for more than two minutes. As his yells become whispers, then he appears to stop breathing. Paramedics attempted CPR and took him to a hospital where he died seven days later. The medical examiner says Prude's death was a homicide, ruling he died by complication of asphyxia and setting of a physical restraint, excited delirium, and PCP. The police chief says the investigation into Prude's death is ongoing. Anytime you have an in-custody death, uh, it is taken serious. This is Grecia Lastra reporting for You News. And two days after President Trump visited Kenosha, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and his wife will also pay a visit where the police shooting of Jacob Blake reignited protests over racial injustice. All this as President Trump threatens to withhold funding to some Democrat-run cities. Andrea Linares has the latest. Joe Biden and his wife Jill will head to Kenosha, Wisconsin. There's been uh, overwhelming requests that I do come. Uh, because uh, what we want to do is we got to heal. We got to put things together, bring people together. Biden's visit comes on the heels of President Trump's earlier this week. Trump's visit drew criticism after he ignored local leaders who asked him not to come. The president did not meet with the family of Jacob Blake, saying the family wanted to involve lawyers. Biden's plans do include a meeting with the family, including the 29-year-old man's father. I'm not going to uh, do anything other than meet with uh, and meetings with community leaders, as well as business people and other folks in law enforcement, and to see, uh, start to talk about what has to be done. Not, I'm not going to tell Kenosha what they have to do, but what we have to do together. 
Attorney General William Barr defending the actions of police. I don't think there are two justice systems. Let's, you know, I, I think the narrative that uh, there's a, that the police are on some, uh, you know, epidemic of shooting unarmed black men is simply a false narrative, uh, and also the narrative that that's based on race. Meanwhile, President Trump ordering officials to find ways to cut federal funding to Democrat-controlled cities, a move expected to be challenged in court. The president claims local leaders have allowed places like New York City, Seattle, and Portland to descend into, quote, anarchy during protests for racial justice. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo calling this a political stunt. He better have an army if he thinks he's going to walk down the street in New York. He can't have enough bodyguards to walk through New York City. The move would also jeopardize billions of dollars in aid that could be used to help recover from the coronavirus pandemic. Just yesterday, the city of Kenosha ended its emergency curfew, which had been in effect since August 23rd due to civil unrest following the shooting of Jacob Blake. Kenosha's mayor announced this change, saying the last several nights in the community have been relatively peaceful. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, Unios. with both presidential conventions over, a new poll shows they didn't do much to sway voters. The largest CNN poll shows 51 percent of registered voters backing Joe Biden and 43 percent supporting President Donald Trump. Those numbers are within the margin of error of a similar survey conducted before the conventions. More than 85 percent of voters say they've already made up their minds as to who they're going to vote for. Meanwhile, Facebook announced today that it will block political advertising during the week before the election. This as new questions emerge about the Trump administration's handling of reports of Russian interference during the election period. Edwin Pitti has the latest from Washington, D.C. Edwin? Lorraine, that's right. Facebook is taking strong steps when it comes to try to limit the amount of advertisement and new political ads before the election, exactly a week before Election Day. Now, if any politicians schedule their campaigns with weeks in advance, they will be able to see their ads run all the way up to Election Day. The announcement was made by Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, saying that they are trying to work really hard to try to label any information that is misleading right now. They also want to make sure that people understand that if they go vote in person, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that they will get COVID-19. Also, Facebook will be directing people to news agencies such as Reuters when it comes to results. For them, that is very important because they want to avoid at all means that people don't do early announcements the day of the election without the proper account of the results. Now, Lorraine, we are only 61 days away from the election, and we do know the countries such as Russia and China are working really hard to try to manipulate the way Americans should vote in the election. And right now, we actually have reports from the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, that they held back a report from July 9th that clearly show how Russia was trying to publish false information about Joe Biden's mental health. That bulletin was called, Russia likely to denigrate health of U.S. candidates to influence 2020 election. That was initially drafted to send out to state and local law enforcement for them to know and take action on the way that Russia is trying to influence and interfere in our presidential election. Of course, now the acting secretary of DHA, Shad Wolf, making uh, doing damage control, explaining that the reason they held back that document was because it was poorly written and they are making corrections right now 
So we are expecting that new report with new details at any moment right now. Lorraine? And Edwin, let's talk about something that's been making major headlines. The president made controversial comments yesterday, urging voters to vote twice in North Carolina. What exactly did he say? Yeah, that was with a local interview in Wilmington. The president was asked by the reporter what he thought of the mail-in voting system in North Carolina. And the president answered by saying that anybody in that state that voted through the mail should mm -hmm. also go to the polling places and vote in person. Now, many people are criticizing President Trump for that, for suggesting for people to, to have people voting twice because that's illegal according to election officials. But the president clarifying that if the system is as good as they say it is, anybody who votes through the mail shouldn't be allowed to do it by the moment they reach to the polling place. Live in Washington, D.C., Lorraine, back to you. Thank you, Edwin, for that report. Joining me now is Julio Ricardo Varela, founder of Latino Rebels and co-host of In the Thick podcast. Thanks for being here, Julio. The Latin vote is crucial this year, accounting for 13 percent of the total vote. Where does enthusiasm stand for Joe Biden among Latino voters? Well, you know, if you look at the, the polling that's coming out, He's definitely not polling as well as Obama did in 2008, 2012, and even Hillary Clinton in 2016. It's kind of hovering in the six mid-60s range. And that's not just one poll. That's a couple of polls across uh, different types of methodologies. So there is, there is some question about it. I know it's a difficult uh, conversation to talk about because anyone that kind of raises this gets criticized for... Uh, whatever, <laughs> but doing your job as a political journalist, I, I do think that the level of enthusiasm has sort of, it's not there yet, although there were indications when, when Harris was chosen as, as a vice presidential candidate that it kind of raised some of the enthusiasm. And, and in the end, I think, you know, when you look at the Latino vote in general, as young as it is, uh, it's, you know, I wrote about it in The Atlantic. I do think that the Biden campaign does still have challenges with trying to get younger Latinos as especially in places like Arizona and Florida, to come out and vote for him. And Julio, what about enthusiasm for President Trump? A third of Latinos voted for him in 2016. Can he get similar numbers in 2020? Well, I think a third, it might be a little bit too much. There's people that say, you know, it was anything from 19 to, to 30 percent based on exit polling. But one thing about the, the Trump campaign that has been very effective is that they know their, their voter. They know their Latino voter. And, you know, they're running on issues of you know, fear of socialism, saying that the United States is going to be Venezuela or Cuba. And as ridiculous as it seems, it is effective, right? It is effective if you look at it from from the perspective of ideologies across the Latino electorate and, you know, this right-left push and pull that Latin American countries have done very well in trying to exploit. Uh, they've taken that and they've used it and they keep hammering that issue. So, you know, indications are that Trump is not doing as poorly as people are expecting him to do in 2020, given a pandemic and given, you know, his his comments against the Latino community, there's still plenty of Trump supporters, and especially in places like Florida, where he has to win. Let's move on to another controversial but a very important topic. The Biden campaign released plans to roll back President Trump's anti-immigrant agenda if he was elected. But many Latinos actually hold anti-immigrant views According to Pew, a quarter of Latinos think there are too many immigrants in the country. The number is higher among older Latinos. How much does immigration matter to Latinos? And is the Biden campaign making assumptions about the Latino vote? 
Well, I think one of the problems with with the Biden campaign is that they've never really had a public reckoning of being part of the Obama deporter in chief administration. And as much as they try to sweep that under the rug, it's an issue. And I think that's that's leading to the enthusiasm issue that's happening. I think, unfortunately, our community and I mean, people that come from different countries, we kind of do a really bad job also remembering where we came from. Right. And I think this notion of, well, I came here the right way and you didn't, it, it speaks to issues of classism, elitism, racism within our own community. I think the Biden campaign would be very smart in the next, whatever, 60, 61 days to actually have more of a public reckoning and acknowledging of the fact that some of the policies of the Obama immigration enforcement, uh, you know, of that administration just harmed the Latino community. And why can't we be real about it? Why can't, you know, people like Julian Castro have evolved and have admitted that that's one of the biggest problems with Democrats. And again, it's it's an issue that people do not want to talk about because it's seen as, well, that means you're voting for Trump or you don't want this to happen. But it's a reality. And, and, and this feeling from the Latino community, it hasn't gone away. And I just think the Biden campaign needs to be a little bit more public with it. Well, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Julio Ricardo Varela, founder of Latino Rebels and co-host of In the Thick podcast. A COVID-19 vaccine is closer to becoming a reality in the U.S. The president promising by the end of the year. And now we're learning the CDC has already given governors a notification that distribution could start days before the election. President Trump apparently ready to deliver on the promise he made during the RNC. We'll produce a vaccine before the end of the year, or maybe even sooner. On the same day of his speech, a letter going out to governors from the director of the CDC telling them to get ready for the release of a vaccine by November 1st, saying the government is rapidly making preparations to implement large-scale distribution of COVID-19 vaccines in the fall of 2020. Some experts concerned that the vaccine might be released without all the necessary research. The concern is that we're going to be rolling out vaccines to healthcare workers very, very early on in phase three, well before we have the data to support it. Meanwhile, in Iowa, a dangerous coronavirus surge, an average positivity rate above 10% for the past two weeks, and warnings from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. But still, it's not enough for the governor to issue a mask mandate to help reduce the spread. I still believe it's up to the governors in the various state to make those decisions. Sometimes they don't have the entire picture of the things that we're doing. As the school year gets underway in Miami, a 16-year-old arrested for a cyber attack that interrupted virtual learning in that district for two days. In Los Angeles, officials announcing they will now allow special education students to attend in-person classes starting September 14th. And just days before the holiday weekend, experts urging people to practice common sense. Backyard barbecues are fine as long as they're not massive, but you have to have a plan. What if it starts raining? Don't have everybody come indoors. The World Health Organization, after looking at several trials published in the Journal of American Medical Association, is now recommending the use of common steroids in treating severe and critically ill COVID patients. 
A new COVID-19 study has revealed possible risks to pregnant women. The study says pregnant women diagnosed with COVID-19 don't always show symptoms, but they are more likely to be admitted to the intensive care unit after a COVID-19 diagnosis. It also found pregnant women with COVID-19 are at risk of delivering preterm. The research added pregnant women should be considered to be moderate risk and they should continue to follow the latest government guidelines guidance on coronavirus prevention. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announcing that he will lift the state ban on visiting nursing homes in effect since March because of the pandemic. While the news has been well received by patients and their families, there are a number of restrictions that could be difficult to enforce. Here's Brenda Cancino. In Florida, the coronavirus hit nursing homes particularly hard. So much that there was a time when one out of every three deaths in the state occur in a senior center. This is why in mid-March a state ban was placed on all family visits to these centers, seeking to protect the most vulnerable residents. Barbara Gutierrez has suffered every second that she has not been able to share with her mother. Since then, I have not been able to touch her. I have not been able to kiss her. And it is a very difficult thing. And I have been praying not only that she's well and healthy, but that she doesn't leave me right now because I want to be with her, to kiss her, to help her. This daughter's fear is shared by many. However, Governor Ron DeSantis announced that now family members are allowed to visit these places under certain rules. Visits will be by appointment with no more than two visitors at the time per person and everyone must wear protective equipment such as masks. No facility will be allowed to receive visitors unless 14 days have passed without any positive cases among staff or residents. Based on the Florida governor's recommendations, many of the centers cannot open their doors to visitors because of the 14 days restrictions we have. According to Carrasco, the problem is that at this moment, almost no nursing homes in the state has been free of COVID for 14 days. That is why some relatives are struggling between love and the harsh reality. I want to see her and I want to hug her and kiss her, but at the same time, I want all of those who are in the nursing home healthy and not to let COVID into that nursing home. While they wait for the reunion, Magnolia and her daughter Barbara will continue to use technology to feel closer. Reported by Lourdes del Rio in Miami, Brenda Cancino, U News. More of U News after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. They don't know when they're going to be able to go back to work. Victims also from Mexico and this mass shooting. Officials in and out of the residence. We're going to continue fighting. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your news, your world, U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. Hurricane Nana hit the coast of Belize early morning with predictions of life-threatening flash floods and mudslides from the National Hurricane Center. It was downgraded to a tropical storm soon after making landfall. This video recorded yesterday shows a flooded street and heavy rain on the island of Roatan, Honduras. 
Nana had reached hurricane strength overnight after hitting the coast of Honduras. It was the fifth hurricane of the season. The National Hurricane Center said tropical storm conditions would affect parts of Belize, Guatemala and Mexico. And a major wildfire in Brazil has already burned more than 3,200 square miles in the country's Panatel area. And dry weather and strong winds are making it difficult to combat the massive flames. In August alone, around 6,000 fires were recorded in that area, the world's largest tropical wetland. Along with battling the blaze, firefighters are leading efforts to rescue rare species. Elsewhere in South America, Venezuelan opposition figure Enrique Capriles broke ranks with opposition leader Juan Guaido on Wednesday after announcing his support for the country's legislative elections on December 6. Capriles said in a video statement streamed on his social media that holding an election for a new National Assembly was the only chance to resist the rule of Nicolás Maduro. Capriles' decision to support the election is the biggest break in opposition ranks since Guaido was elected leader in January of 2019. And Brazilian soccer star Neymar is has tested positive for COVID-19. According to French media, he is one of three Paris Saint-Germain players who have contracted coronavirus after returning from a vacation in Ibiza, Spain. Neymar is the world's most expensive soccer player, having signed a $263 million deal in 2017. The three players will now miss the start of the new European soccer season on September 10th. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.